Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garaholi, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking about what happens after President Trump leaves office. Can our country begin to heal after four years of divisive, racist rhetoric and policy? Can we rebound after four years of listening to a White House that promoted alternative facts and a president who lied more than 20,000 times? How has our world changed, or has it, now that Joe Biden was elected president? Our guest is someone who has thought a lot about what comes next. It's Steve Ketman, the editor of a new book of essays called Now What? The Voters Have Spoken, Essays on Life After Trump. We talk about what comes next and what we're about to leave behind. And now, here's my conversation with Steve Ketman. Steve Ketman, welcome to It's All Political. Uh, From my home in Oakland to where you are, a brew pub in Capitola. How are you doing? How's that? That, what, what do you have you ordered? Have you placed your order yet? I have. I'm gonna get uh, a nice. Uh, I don't know some kind of noodles or something. We'll see. Some noodles. Okay, noodles. All right, excellent. Um, so we uh, we may hear some noises in the background. We may hear you know dishes clanky, but that's sort of the uh, cinema verite if it's if it's all political. Thanks for coming on. We want to talk about this book of this great book of essays that you've edited and contributed to. Um, so Joe Biden has made a speech, a point every speech he's given since the outcome of the election was no longer in doubt, that he will be the president for all Americans. He talks about needing to bring the country together uh, to repair the soul of the nation was a theme of his campaign. And, um, you know, now that uh, he is uh, officially, by all by almost all standards, the president-elect, we are all going to have to sort of face that, uh, as you say, uh, uh, reckoning and, and coming together. And uh, as we're moving through the holiday season, we want to talk to you about some ways that each of us can can do that in some way possible. Um, so first of all, tell us about how, how this project came together, came together very quickly uh, and, and walk us through that for a couple of minutes. So a little background, you know, I was a Chronicle reporter back in the 90s. People yes. may actually remember the name. I covered baseball, covered the Oakland A's and then went off to Berlin where I met my wife, uh, Sarah Ringler. And we started a small writers retreat center here in the Santa Cruz area about eight years ago, and published some books. And at, at, uh, at one point in the, in the pandemic, my wife, Sarah, suggested, hey, you know, maybe it would be cool to get some essays from different people, different writers, looking at one day in the pandemic, just kind of, what's it like, you know? And I love the idea, but again, uh, with a lot going on in the pandemic, it was just hard to get to that, and it wasn't really an option. But then, in my own mind, I kept thinking about it and I tried to turn the idea around. You know, it's kind of like a a stone in your pocket that you play with or something like that. You know, you just kind of, you keep twisting, you know, like flipping it around and and wait, wait till it seems right. So uh, I, I, uh, you know, I've done like you, I've reported on politics. I've uh, was actually a, a reporter at New York Newsday doing politics before I ever did sports. I've done a lot of books um, relating to politics and I thought, wow, what a strange moment this is going to be the morning after the election when we wake up and it dawns on people that that it's finally going to end, that, that, that Donald Trump is not going to be president anymore. And so we moved forward on it. I actually had a kind of partnership deal with Vice Media. It was tentative. 
but they were very interested and tried to develop it for them as well. But that really helped me early on because when you're, when you're talking to a Rosanna Arquette or an Anthony Scaramucci or a Christopher Buckley or some of the other contributors, it really helps to say that you're backed by Vice Media, which I was at that time. So that's how it all started. And we got this great, kind of insanely good lineup together. And then, of course, the morning after came and it was no morning after, you know, as you know, and your <laughs> listeners know. It was, it was it weeks was, after. It was all over. The place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I was getting these frantic emails. Uh, one of the one of the essays, one of the I think the best, they're all very good, but is Art Cullen, who you and I may have talked about is a small town newspaper editor in Iowa, who, of course, every four years becomes very important during Iowa caucus season. But Art's a real deep guy, and he, uh, he's, his essay toward the end really talks about, you know, agricultural policy and all that, where we need to go moving forward, talking about ideas of food justice that I know a lot of people, it, you know, that listening, um, think about that a lot, you know, uh, equity, food issues. And Art puts that all together in his essay, but the, the funny thing was he filed it literally the morning after. <laughs> which I didn't, in the end, I didn't really want people to do. Other people reached out, asked me what the heck they should do. And we kind of dealt with the chaos and we moved the title from the morning after to now what, but uh, that, that's how it, that's how it came together. And it is a very eclectic lineup. Um, uh, but most of the folks are, are coming from the perspective of uh, whew, Trump's gone for the most part. Um, but there are some, there are some exceptions to that and, and, and uh, sort of uh Republicans and former Republicans are weighing too. Um, you you write in, in the intro that there's sort of a, a reckoning that we all have to come uh, that sort of we have to look at ourselves at. And you write, I think each of us has to look within and challenge ourselves to do better, be better, if we're truly going to mo move forward and find ways to connect with other Americans who might disagree on much, but can agree on our common humanity. That that's sort of the core of what this is all about. Correct. I, I would definitely say so. Thank you, Joe. I think that's it. So let's let's start uh, how we get to that point because it's not certainly not going to happen overnight. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot been said, uh, you know, uh, over the last four years. Um, one of the one of the things that that's going to come up pretty soon, perhaps, is what to do about Trump. Um, he is facing a lot of legal issues. Uh, he is, and uh, not only uh, you know in the uh, the Southern District of New York, but he also has, there's also uh, three women who have, uh, their cases involving uh, uh, sexual misconduct are, are, are moving forward rapidly. Uh, and and Christopher Buckley, who's a, who's a, just a great writer, and uh, at one time Republican presidential speechwriter, has a great essay. He writes, no one, even among his most uh, ardent detractors, has suggested he go to jail for presidential crimes. That's what we have impeachment for, or so we thought, until the aforementioned G, uh, GOP nullified that lofty idea. But America being a nation of equal justice under law, why should anyone be immune from prosecution for crimes committed as a citizen? Magnanim magnanimous these thoughts may not be, I stipulate. But there's a satisfying karmic aspect to color-coordinating Mr. Trump's attire with his hair and complexion. Um. So that's a funny line, but it's, it seems like that's, that's not coming together. I mean, where, where do we kind of figure out the line between, uh, you know, uh, seeking justice for Trump, what he you know is alleged to have done over the last four years, legal justice and coming together. Where do those, 
parts intersect? Yeah, well, it's not easy. And I would, I would point to several things all at once. I mean, one thing I would talk about is uh, people, at least of a certain age, remember Norman Lear, who was very famous. I, I think he yes. invented the sitcom or something like that. I mean, anyway, he's huge in the world the, of TV. Certainly the political sitcom, yeah. yes. Uh, right, right. And he was, yeah, politically involved. But his granddaughter, Sophia Lear, is one of our contributors. And I actually closed the collection with her because I was so moved by what she wrote about just waking up after the election and, and, and it just really sinking in on her about, I don't know about all that she doesn't know. We have to move on from here, but how do we move on from here if we don't even know what here is? So that that's one point I would make. I think that we obviously live in times where that, that, that there's a sort of plague of knowingness, uh, not only on social media in general, where, of course, reporters like you and me, and we're supposed to act like we know what's going on, whether we do or we don't. That's one kind of knowing. But people in general uh, do try to act like they have things figured out that they really don't. I mean, you could talk about baseball and, you know, analytics. And uh, you know what? There's always mystery. And being alert and open to the mystery and the the, the, the very nature of every day, I, I think is really important. That sounds very California, but as a storyteller, I think that's part of it. We've fallen into this trap, I think, collectively, the storytellers of America during the Trump years of making everything reactive, reactive to a reactionary. You know, so the, the, the amplitude, the bandwidth of the storytelling becomes very narrow. And it, it, it is only the more lurid, more the shouted, the, the, the more obscene uh, details and takes that, that, that kind of emerge from that. And so part of it is to try to gain back some quiet. That's something a lot of the essayists wrote about in a lot of different ways. So I think I'm less focused on questions like, do we want to lock Trump up? And more like, can we quit this drug? Can we, can we stop needing to uh, see something on social media about what stupid things he did or one of his kids did or whatever. And I'm talking to everyone, whether you're pro-Trump or anti-Trump. Then I would, I would again, I could, I could talk about a lot of the different essays, but I would point to one other one that's particularly interesting. You, you probably saw Trump going to war on social media against the 27 Republicans in Congress out of, you're the, you're the pro, I'll leave it to you to how many, but out of a lot of Republicans in, in Congress, in the House, 27 of them, uh, at least as of a couple of days ago, even acknowledged that Biden was president-elect. So Trump took to, to Twitter to rip them. And one of them, a guy from Virginia named Denver Riggleman, he, uh, he has a whiskey distillery. He's not exactly a standard issue politician, which I mean is a big compliment. He, uh, he took to Twitter... He took to Twitter to sort of raise his hand and say, here I am. I'm one of the guys. I'm one of the 27. And of course, just had a, uh, you know, a blizzard of, uh, I don't think the word I want to say, I can say on the podcast, but go ahead. Anyway, we can say anything. Um, yeah. we, we've uh, the, the executive editors yeah, dropped the chicken off. shit early. So, so yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah. I, I once said, I once said bullshit on ESPN and got banned. So I'm, I'm a little touchy, <laughs> but uh, anyway, he, uh, Denver Riggleman uh, has had a, a hell of a time because of all that. His own mother 
is not on speaking terms for, to, with him right now. This is serious. I talked to Denver this morning and yesterday. He's one of our contributors. He writes a great essay about being a Republican in Congress who has dared speak out about aspects of the cult. I mean, he's, this is a conservative, a libertarian, and it has gotten so toxic that his own mother might not be on speaking terms with him. Many friends have disowned him. So I'm, I, I, I kind of went into the project, yeah, hoping that we could have a little bit more, okay, not kumbaya, but maybe we could try to learn something about talking to former Trump supporters. I'm less focused on that now because Denver, for one, is reminding me of how difficult that's going to be. But at the same time, you have, you know, you mentioned Christopher Buckley, his father, William F. Buckley, was, at least in my eyes, basically the founder of modern conservatism. And here he is comparing, you know, uh, Trump to Nixon in his second sentence. You have Jacob Heilbrunn, the editor of the National Interest, um, who, with, you know, the, the journal that was huge in establishing neoconservatism. And he's basically blaming the neocons for giving us Trumpism. We have, there are a lot of essays that grapple with where conservatism can go from here. In fact, Sam Tannenhaus, the former New York Times book review editor, has the collection and is you know, telling us privately nice things and is considering doing a blurb. He's the guy who wrote The Death of Conservatism. So hmm. that's a big part of it. But I don't know that we're really holding our breath waiting to talk to the full Trump cultists about where we go from here. I think that would be a difficult conversation. No, I think I think they're they're not uh, they haven't figured that out, too. So much depends about what happens to the president. Uh, what does he do out of office? You know, you're you uh, it's almost like when you drive a new car off the lot, it immediately becomes devalued when when a when a president steps out of the Oval Office. Uh, he or she becomes uh, devalued instantly, you know, and that will be the, as you loop it back to what you said a couple minutes ago, uh, we, the, the media has a responsibility here into uh, how we cover Trump, uh, the, you know, how we cover Trump as an ex-president. We've never had an ex-president who had such a command on social media. Um, he has, you know, uh, uh, tens of millions, I was at 80, 80 million people on, on Twitter right now. Uh, what, what does he do with that? Do the, do, and then wh what if he starts touring? What, what, how do we cover him as sort of a, a, a president waiting, uh, or sort of a, a shadow presidency or just a, another guy out there? If, but he does have a following and we'll have to see where this following goes. Um, what, when you mentioned Denver Riggleman, I loved his essay because he also talked about something else we're going to have to confront and that's QAnon. He said, you know, he has spoken out. He's a, the former military guy, he's spoken out against QAnon and he's getting hammered for it. Um, this is a crazy conspiracy theory and, but it's out there and people, not only people believe it, we have our first member of Congress who is, you know, uh, uh, essentially a, a, uh, an acolyte of it, of sense of sorts. Um, well, how do we, how do we wrestle with that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's very difficult. What Denver's talking about, like he was on CNN last night, and I think he did about seven different hits yesterday, BBC, MSNBC, radio, that, talking about exactly that problem. What do we do? And he, he's talking to me about deprogramming. You know, everyone, again, the way that our dialogue works is you throw out the cliche, like, oh, they really drank the Kool-Aid. 
but then you don't really think very much about Jim Jones. And what was the thing that Jim Jones was saying to people back in the day when he was bringing them to the cause where they would actually go down there, uh, you know, in the jungle uh, and, and drink Kool-Aid laced with cyanide and, and die just because this guy told him to, which, you know, Riggleman argues, and I, I can't, I can't find fault with the argument that, that that's pretty much what we're talking about. You, you, you really have seen plenty of Trump supporters who've said that they would literally die for the man, had people talking about him as some kind of Christ figure, which, uh, you know, a lot of us find spectacularly misplaced, but it raises the question of, yeah, where will they go from here? I think the onus is on the media to be the media, to be the fourth estate and to remember the responsibility in a democracy to not only be about the bottom line, not only be about, hey, this is a clickbait headline that's wonderful for our subscription and our, our paid subscriptions. And hey, we're making money like we never did before. And no, I'm not talking about the Chronicle. I was had in mind certain East Coast papers that I won't, uh, <laughs> you know, sl slime because I try to write for them occasionally. Yes. But um, you get the point. I think I think leadership has to really show leadership and he is just going to be a, a citizen, an ex-president like Jimmy Carter, like Bill Clinton, like George W. Bush. And just because he can say something stupid that inflames people doesn't mean you need to write a story about it. And on the other hand, I think, you know, people like you, me to a lesser degree, Eric Bowler, who kind of leads the charge on this. I think media uh, training, uh, Denver Riggleman talks about this as well, by the way, media training, media literacy, encouraging people to talk back, but not in a shrill way, a way that people can handle, a way that can be at least somewhat constructive. I mean, it's a little far afield, but uh, I think you might have read, I did a, a piece for the Chronicle to, about Diane Feinstein. I thought yes. gently encouraging her to consider stepping down at some point of her, her choosing. And I, I just cite the article because I wrote it a particular way, which is uh, uh, John Diaz, the great longtime editorial page editor of the Chronicle, and I talked about it. Uh, John is a friend. but And uh, we really wanted to do a piece that Diane herself, Senator Feinstein, you know, might actually sit there on Sunday reading and not have it just feel like someone, you know, a food fight that John Belushi just started, which is what mm. so much social media is. And frankly, even the New Yorker piece by uh, the great reporter, uh, what's her last name? Jane, I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, it Jane doesn't Meyer. matter. Jane, Jane Meyer, she, or Jane Mayor, she yep. just did a great story that talked about Feinstein and lapses. And that's important reporting. But, but I, I'm pointing to what I did as an example of what we need more of, where, where citizens, people that listen to your podcast, get out there on Twitter, they get out there on social media, they write letters and they engage and say to decision makers in newsrooms across the country, no, I don't want to hear the latest on Trump having a rally and, you know, claiming that he won the election and recites the same lies that we all know are lies. I, I, when it's something new, get back to me. We'll have more of our conversation with Steve Ketman after this short break. And now, here's more of our conversation about life after Trump with our guest, Steve Ketman. A couple of things I wanted to, to touch on uh, some interesting essays. One is by um, 
Angela Wright Shannon. And uh, she was, uh, for to remind folks, she was supposed to testify in the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court confirmation hearings uh, many years ago. And she was going to corroborate all the things that Anita Hill said about uh, uh, Justice Thomas. But the last minute, Joe Biden, who was then leading the uh, committee, uh, said, uh, told her that they would just take her written testimony, and which, which is, of course, is much less powerful than uh, seeing that in person. Uh, she's a Republican and knew Thomas. She, um, you know, she thinks Biden will be a, a good president in terms of the competency and taking on the, the, the COVID pandemic and such. But she addresses the uh, the, rec- the the reckoning we also have to do on the racial justice reckoning. She says, "I'm not sure a Biden Harris administration can do much to heal the racial divide, which has proven to be not a riff or a schism, but an abyss." That's that's something else we have to. Uh, talk about on the on, on the morning after uh, the the the, uh, the the racial divide, which uh, widened during the president's uh, term, um, is is and uh, we, that is another reckoning that we have to deal with. Absolutely, uh, two of the first four essays in the collection are from African American women, Angela, and then Mary C. Curtis, another another award winning columnist, very important voice because it's so important. And we had we have Reverend Al Sharpton in the collection. We have Howard Bryant, uh, like me, a former sports writer who- Yes, he's uh, a, 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 also a, uh, a podcast guest on this podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, Howard, he is great. He's very thoughtful. And he talked about the, the, the ancestors, about the, the, the election, how important that was, and, and about the horror of seeing people in their 70s and 80s he was thinking African-Americans who who might die with Trump as president, seeing the promise of the Obama years just turn into a, I'm not going to quote him on it, but a, a, a squalid, you know, a dark caricature of, of what had been hope. And, and I thought that was very important. But to to that abyss, I, I, I agree with that characterization that I think that the, the Biden-Harris administration is probably going to make incremental progress at best. At the same time, I think that we are seeing something very important with the record setting turnout and and voting with the African-American vote um, really finally starting to be acknowledged as the the critical part of of democratic voting that it is with Latinos who are also represented in the collection, Latinos and Latinas. And the idea that you can't talk about Latinos and Latinas, you can't talk about the Hispanic vote as some sort of, you know, monolith. Uh, Amanda Renteria, yes. who ran for governor um, yes. and uh, worked for Hillary uh, and also was the first Latina chief of staff uh, in the Senate. Um, she, I thought, contributed a wonderful essay talking about her parents and also about the different groups. So, you know, greater cultural literacy and uh, 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 the ability to speak to each other uh, as individuals across a lot of different chasms is something that's long overdue and that takes a lot of work. But I think progress leads to progress in that regard. And when we're not all, um, you know, reacting to the latest horror of the day, like kids in cages, you know, Charlottesville, um, et cetera, then I, then I think maybe there's a little bit more time to work on that, but it's a long, it's a years long struggle. I, I also, in the, in the essay was happy, in the uh, collection was happy to include an essay by J.L. Coven, the, the, the comedian, 
who does a wonderful Trump impression that people have, a lot of you, a lot of your listeners have seen. If not, I recommend looking it up. But he talked about this being like, uh, you know, the orange tumor has been removed, but now we have to go through political chemo. And I think it's a great metaphor because I, I have not experienced chemo myself, but a lot of loved ones have. And you never know what to expect. You know, maybe mm-hmm. the hair falls out. Maybe it doesn't. You know, maybe it makes you a lot sicker. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you get better. And so that's truly where I feel we are as a country, Joe. Uh, one of the things that the, the, the disconnect over the last uh, five years of talking to Trump voters for me has always been, and particularly the last couple of years, has always been why many of them back him. I, I get uh, the the uh, he represents grievances and 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 uh, he's a and and a fighter. I spoke to right after the um, uh, the the election was sort of in in hand. Um, I spoke to someone, a woman from Fresno, who's a longtime uh, Trump supporter, um, and she said. Uh, and for Fresno, for those who don't know, the heart of Red California, he enjoys the president enjoys a lot of support there. She told me that people like him because he's a fighter. Everyone else is a politician. She said, he's a person that everybody hates. The media, the Democrats, everybody comes at him, but he keeps fighting. And I said, well, you know, how has your life changed? But she liked that he's a fighter for them. So, and and in your book of essays, uh, someone who gives a lot of interesting insight in this is the mooch, Anthony Scaramucci, which is, he, he had a very interesting essay for, to remind people, because this this seems... Uh, almost like a million years ago, he was a, a guy from the finance industry that Trump knew, who was his communication day, uh, director for 11 days, a unit of time that's come to be known in political circles as one Scaramucci. Uh, he, he thought, he's, he writes, he thought Trump was going to help people like his friends and family in Long Island, people, working people. But he, as he said, he misjudges character. But he writes, white ethnics, remember, see themselves as whiter than Archie Bunker. Many Hispanics also see themselves as whiter than Archie Bunker. They see Trump as the last white man standing between them and a horde of latte-drinking Hispanic and black transvestites that are going to come up over the transom and take over their government and their culture. That's the Scaramucci. Um, how, how do we connect? What, 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 did the, the, these, what did you glean from the essays that how do we connect with those 74 million Americans who voted for Trump? Anthony was, you know, a, a great addition to the lineup. And I, I just before you and I started talking just now, Joe, I was talking to his assistant and I, I think he's going to appear in a couple of events, uh, California events for the book. I mean, it'll oh, be wow. virtual, great. Yeah. but we're probably going to have him with the Commonwealth Club in February and probably with Book Passage in January. And I think, you know, for Californians to get access to Scaramucci to ask him some questions sounds a lot like a lot of fun to me because he... The thing about him is, you know, what you see is what you get. And, you know, all my dealings with him, he's been so direct and honest and just himself. And, you know, I I have to say he's emerged from the the, the dark cloud of the Trump world. You know, uh, I don't want to say fully intact, but he made some kind of exit. You know, yeah, he, he yeah. <laughs> certain, um, I don't know, I, I no, no, I mean, he's working towards redemption, I think, amongst many people. But uh, but he's yeah, still still. I mean, the, when your name's a, a unit of measure there, I think he's still in the still has one foot firmly in the cultural gag, uh, you know, camp. But yeah, no, he's 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 moving his way out. But anyways, go ahead. 
yeah exactly we're just talking about the the vector there he's moving yeah. at least and and he talked about um you know as he and he fought hard against trump in this election he was out doing yeah. as much as he could and he but he talked about that that trump is is, is human the human side of him and shared it's, it's in the essay in the book uh, shared a moment in the oval office where scaramucci was telling him you know don't you you know, come on, this, you're sitting in the Oval Office, you look up at the ceiling, there's the seal up there. Come on, that's got to get to you. And Trump told him basically for the first day it did. And then, you, you know, you kind of have to get to work. But I thought it was a very interesting glimpse. But to your question, as far as that goes, I, I, I read something somewhere that was interesting about uh, Trump has never been one to hide his own flaws, you know, and, and I think it's interesting how that appeals to people you know it's 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 kind of almost like in sports where uh, someone has a persona where they have big negatives but that's just who they are and everybody just deals with it you know and then you move on and then it makes someone feel more accessible as a personality to people and like so you, you turn it to to you know figures in the democratic party and like someone like a gavin newsom you know, I myself think Gavin Newsom is, you know, is doing a pretty good job as governor with a tough job. I don't cover it full time. I, I'm sure if I did, I might have more nuanced view. But from where I sit here at my uh, brew pub in Capitola, you know, it seems like he's doing, <laughs> yes. doing pretty well. And he makes one mistake. You know, he makes one mistake where, you know, uh, whether it was lobbyists or his wife that, you, you know, uh, prevailed upon him to attend a, an event at the French Laundry. Now, first of all, I, if I were an advisor, I'd say don't ever go near the French Laundry as governor. Just don't do it ever. And it's funny to me that if you called it the German Laundry, it could still be, you know, 500 bucks for appetizers <laughs> and somehow it wouldn't be the scandal. But my point is just because it fits into this sort of cliche of, you know, uh, Trevor Noah called Newsom governor hair gel and talked about the people that are that are that do stuff like this, what Newsom did, uh, that it's hypocrisy and that it's worse than the people that are out there, you know, whatever, encouraging people not to wear masks. Well, I love Trevor Noah. I mean, you know, he's great. But I have to say, I have to say, I think you said I can say bullshit. I have to call bullshit on that because, you know, that mentality where we, we treat Democrats as if they must be do-gooders who are supposed to be perfect and any time they fall short, we, 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 we treat it, we in the media and, and we in the public, we talk, we treat it as some kind of proof that they're not really who they say they were. And it, it's this ridiculous standard and I don't have an answer to it, but, but that is part of the problem that, that the way that the democratic message is conveyed to the public has an element of holier than thou, smug, um, something like that. And again, I mentioned Sophia Lear. She talked about that as well. I highly recommend that essay. I can't, you know, I can't do it justice, but uh, I'd love to hear from any of your listeners. I'm on Twitter at, at Steve Ketman, S-T-E-V-E-K-E-T-M-A-N. And really the project was getting together these essays in a hurry, getting it out there. Incredible cover from the New Yorker cover artist, Mark Ulrichson of San Francisco who also contributes an essay after for him. But the idea was to get it out there and then have a conversation about it, like what you and I are doing right now and what we're all doing, listening to the podcast. And I would just love to have people, 
if they order it or they have reactions to this conversation, but reach out on, on social media. You're there. I'm there. You know, um, who's our KCBS contributor? I, again, I, Doug Sovereign I, is, uh, Doug is an Sovereign. Our, our, my, yeah. my, my friend and Oakland neighbor, uh, Doug Sovereign. Although he, I believe he technically lives in Berkeley, but he's we're, we live we're our neighbors. And yes, Doug has an essay in there and uh, a lot of great essays. The book is called Now What? The Voters Have Spoken, Essays on Life After Trump. Steve Kettman, thank you so much for joining us, uh, and it's all political. Is your, how's the, have you been able to eat? I, well, did, were you able to eat during some of my questions? Did you get a bite in or two? Or? No, I'm not good at uh, that kind of multitasking. So <laughs> I, I'm very happy that we wrap this up, because now I can eat. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Steve. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and I hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Steve for joining us today. The book is called Now What? The Voters Have Spoken, Essays on Life After Trump, and is available wherever you get books. I'd like to thank the great one, Karen Creighton, for producing this episode. And a shout out to our great theme music, that's Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter what you think will happen after Trump, it's all political.